You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Today we have a special guest joining us from New York City. He is a former stockbroker turned real estate investor and multifamily syndicator. He is the founder and CEO of JC Property Group and the co-founder and managing partner at Toro Real Estate Partners. John Cohen, welcome to the show. Oh, it was a pleasure. Um, you know, thank you for having me on. I'm hoping I can provide some value to your listeners uh, and really get into the, you know, the nitty gritty. Awesome. So, John, usually the way we kick off our show is we ask our guests, you know, why should we listen to you? What have you accomplished in the, the real estate investing world that, that can provide a context for the value you're going to offer today? Yeah. So I think the most important thing, a lot of this business is, you know, how you say something, not what you say. And I think that, you know, what I, where we like to be different is, you know, I like to tell, you know, the truth, right? The no fluff, the real story. And, and I started my real estate career, you know, buying some super heavy lifting tax deferred delinquent property by myself, no debt on my own cash. And I ended up buying about 150 properties in Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And it was all through tax auction. And that was properties between $300 to, you know, $20,000, $30,000. And from 2013, really, no, actually, first property was in 2011. But from 2011 to 2013, it was just sort of figuring it out. And then 2013 to 2016 was the end of that. But while I was doing that, we ended up buying multifamily property. I was a multifamily broker for Marcus and Millichap. And I just saw my clients buying property, managing it, and, and the upside that they were delivering on their deal. So I wanted to be a multifamily investor, but I didn't have the cash to go out and buy my own 48-unit deal. So I ended up syndicating my first apartment in 2014. From 2014 to 2019, you know, we've acquired 4,500 apartments. That's 22 deals. We've sold about 12 of them. We have two more deals in contract to sell in the first quarter of 2020. That 4,500 units, it equates to about $300 million of real estate, where early on, I was putting in $20,000, dollars $40,000 a deal. After going full cycle on deals, now, myself and my partner, we're typically investing no less than 10% to 30% of the total equity. So in our deals right now, our average leverage is somewhere in the 70% range. So we're 70% leveraged on $300 million. And our equity of that 30% is typically somewhere in the 10 to 30% range. So we've done that by going full cycle on deals, generating investor hurdles, and taking that money and reinvesting it back into the business. Awesome. Awesome. It sounds like you've done a ton. So let's back it up a little bit. And can you tell us kind of how you got started? You mentioned that you got started in tax liens, but what made you decide that you were interested in real estate investing? Can you tell us maybe about your your first deal or kind of how you started to make that transition? And and I assume you're not a stockbroker anymore. Correct. At at what point did you decide, I want to go full time and kind of move that over? Great question. So I, You know, I think everybody to some degree think, you know, is interested in real estate. You know, I want to own property or, or when you're driving with your friends, you're, you know, oh wow, look, I'd love to own that building. I imagine how much rent it brings in. And I I think everybody has that feeling. But for me in 2009, I graduated college. I played baseball in college. So school was not necessarily a major focus. And my brother was, he's two years younger than me. 
he went to school and I went to visit him. I went to go to see where he was living and he was living in a, in a house that was rented out by the bedroom. And one of the kids in his, in his house would have to go through one person's bedroom and up into the attic where their house was. So I said to him, I was like, Oh shit. Like, you know, this is crazy. People are actually paying to live here. What do you guys pay? So he told me and I was like, uh, you know, let's go buy a house. So we bought a house and you know, where he went to school and we rented it out to, you know, he played rugby. So we, we, rented it out to the rugby team forever. Now we have a family in there, just a single tenant who treats the house a lot better. But I would say 2009 was when it clicked for me. But even earlier than that, when I was a freshman going into my sophomore year, a lot of kids got houses on, on campus or on school. Uh, so we were looking at houses and, you know, I said, well, if I buy this house for 50 grand or whatever it was at that time, 45, 75,000, I could rent it out to four friends you know, I think it'd be good because it wouldn't cost me anything to live. So I would say right around that period of time is when it really became something I was interested in. While I was a stockbroker, a financial advisor, I just started getting ads because I was, you know, I'd read about it online and, you know, all the media, social media, the SREO, you know, you read one thing and then uh, another yeah. thing pops up. Now, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't nearly as good as it is today back in 2011, let's call it. You know, now if you look at like a painting and you go to Instagram, <laughs> all your ads are paintings. Back then it was just, you know, on the side of, you know, whatever search engine. So I started downloading some books and reading them and, and I just fell in love with, I was looking for lower cost stuff because I wanted to use my own money. I didn't really think about raising money. I was in finance. I'd raise money all day for, you know, stocks and stuff like that. So I just wanted to use what I had. And I met a kid on a rooftop bar in Manhattan. I had a stack of paper, probably about an inch and a half to two inches thick that he said, I bought all these properties in Philadelphia for, you know, a thousand bucks, 400 bucks. And I was like, you know, you know <laughs> get the F out of here. Right. So <laughs> I, I drove to Philadelphia. Actually, I drove to where I had the house in Pennsylvania first and sat at an auction. I bought two properties for $700 total. They were a complete waste of money, but that's when it clicked. It was like, okay, I'm doing this relatively successful with my own money. And then my defining moment when I was a stockbroker was when Facebook IPO'd. I was working at Morgan Stanley or I got a job in Morgan Stanley. After being in the business for three years, I had a nine-month interview process just back and forth with different people at Morgan Stanley. I finally got hired. I was the youngest kid in the training program by 10 years. I was in my early 20s. I was the youngest kid in the program by 10 years. Facebook IPO'd. I walked into my office. I saw an 80-year-old couple, husband and wife, that looked like their world ended because when Facebook came out, it didn't do well. The IPO, Morgan Stanley underwrote it. So they looked like they, they just like it was over. And I sat there like, okay, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. So the day I started my first day of work, I walked into my boss's office and quit. And oh, wow. that was when I stopped doing it because I said, you know, I, I don't want to be like them. And that was the, you know, I came home, I called my mom on my drive home. She's like, what are you doing? I thought you're at work. I said, I actually just quit. She called me crazy. What are you doing? You have a great opportunity. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be a real estate investor. And then she's like, you've completely lost your mind, <laughs> but I support you. Whatever we have to do, you know, you'll make it work. Obviously she was probably scared for me at the time. Cause she said, what are you going to do? And I remember sitting in the back of my house in the summer. I had no shirt on sitting in a lounge chair with a computer open. I'm like, I'm a real estate investor. I'm going to make all this money. <laughs> and, uh, that didn't happen that way. So shortly after being, you know, a real estate investor, realizing that it's a marathon, not a sprint, I ended up getting my license, becoming a broker, ended up, you know, doing sales and rentals in Manhattan, 
ended up working at Marcus and Millichap doing multifamily investment sales. And that's when I fell in love with multifamily. Okay, great. So that's, that kind of leads into our next question. How did you scale or in your case, how did you transition, make that jump from those initial properties into the, the, the larger multifamilies? So when I quit being a stockbroker, I called my dad and I said, you know, I have a great idea. You know, this is 2012, maybe in that time frame, I was like, I have an amazing idea. I'm going to call my clients and I'm just going to ask them for money to go buy real estate. And he said, it's a great idea. It's hundred percent illegal. You can't do that. I was about to say, um, is that even legal? <laughs> uh, at that time it wasn't right. You know, these laws are changing every, there was no such thing as crowdfunding back then or, you know, that stuff didn't exist. And he said, and he's an attorney. So he said, it's a fantastic idea, John, but you have to register blue sky laws and you don't have the money to do that. So I was, that was now, like the first wall I hit. Was your dad in the business? Because it sounds like he's, he's pretty keen on. My, my dad's just super smart. He's like really, really smart. He's not a real estate attorney, but he does do a lot of real estate work, secured lending. Okay. So he's a, he represents a bank and he does a lot of their secured lending or their collateralized loans. So he does a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And he's just a, he's a CPA and an attorney. So he's just, oh, okay. he's yeah, just yeah, yeah. a lot smarter than I am. But, uh, so I, know, well, I, I asked because I, I don't think my dad knows what a blue sky law is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yes, he's a, uh, he had some friends that brought companies public and, and so he's gone, he's been through a lot. So he was the first, he first told me that he like shattered my dreams instantaneous. So I said, Oh, you know what? I won't raise money. I'll just do it myself. And then I quickly realized that, you know, I was having this conversation the other day, 150 houses over five plus years or four plus years, whatever it was sounds sexier than it actually was, you know, soup to nuts. If you talk about the deals that didn't work and the deals that did, because there were times where I'd buy a property at auction, I'd go see the house and there was no floor or there was no roof or it needed too much work. So back then you could put 10% down. So you buy a property for 10% or $700, whatever's great. You buy a property for a thousand bucks, you give them $700, you go check out the house and you're like, uh Oh, you know, I'm not going to renovate this. And then you just lose your $700. So it looks good on paper, 150 houses, and it was very good. I had a great time doing it, and, and I was able to do it part-time while I was working, and I made some money doing it, so it was fun, but I realized I wanted to scale, and when I became a multifamily broker, the light dawned on me when we sold the same property three times in one year, and every single person made pretty good money, to me at least. You know, it was one guy, two guys, three guys, they all sold the property, and I was like, this guy just sold this three months ago. What'd you do? He's like, well, I got two stabilized tenants to free market. So they were showing me value and how to unlock all this upside. So I said, okay, these guys are doing it. I went online, read a book. It was actually a Dave Lindahl book talking about multifamily properties. I downloaded a list from list source because I knew how to do that from my single family days, sent out a direct mailer. And I actually found a property in Ohio that I wanted to buy. So I put an offer on it. The guy called me back about, maybe after four or five mailers, he called me back, three or four mailers, he called me back and he said, uh, I'm listing the property on Monday. This was a Saturday night. I'm listing the property on Monday. If you want to buy it, you have to go see the property. I got on my car, drove out to Columbus, Ohio, saw the property, came, you know, met three or four brokers, got in the car and drove home with two friends. We just jumped in the car and did the 20 hour drive there and back and put the deal under contract on Monday. And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. I'm buying a multifamily deal. Then I had to figure it all out. And I surrounded myself with great people. 
that help me out, you know, doing a private placement, open an operating agreement, bank accounts, you know, due diligence. So I surrounded myself and I had a really good network and it helped me out dramatically. But after that first deal, I just looked for any possible opportunity where I could add value. So one of my friends brought me a deal. They were short 300 grand. So I raised 300 grand for them. Uh, another guy brought me a deal. They didn't have a lender. I introduced him to the guy that did my loan and I just got a little piece of all these deals. So early on it was, okay, I raised half the money, but I'm a 50% partner on the, on the sponsor side. You know, I introduced the lender. I got 5% and all these deals ended up panning out and they all worked out really well given the timing of the market that two years after that, we started selling deals. And next thing I knew, I actually had a little bit of cash. I met my partner at Toro. We just ended up, you know, he was in a 1031 exchange. I had that, you know, hostler mentality. So I went out and found a couple deals. We bought three properties together. We dated before we got married. It worked out really well. And in 2016, it's sort of, it was, you know, that was a snowball rolling downhill from 2014 to 16. It was just any way I could possibly get involved. You know, that, obviously was like a, you know, a shot in the arm to get to 2016 and 2016 is really when we, you know, we started to take off. And I would say it really didn't completely explode until this year is when people started looking at, you know, wow, they've actually sold 12 deals. It wasn't, oh, we bought 20 deals and we're operating them. We went full cycle on, on 12 deals. And now we're like, they know what they're doing now. So it was just scaling was getting involved in any way I possibly can with whoever I met, how I could add value to them. Awesome. You mentioned a property being, and I know this wasn't yours, but you mentioned being sold three times in a year. How long are the typical life cycles of the business plans on these value adds that you're doing? So for us, the deals that we're doing, that was a, you know, a complete unique situation. It was in Manhattan. It was actually in Bushwick, Brooklyn, before Brooklyn exploded. And it was just, you know, six unit property and they just destabilized it a couple of months, a couple of months. Yeah. Our deals, you know, we, we've, you know, our first property we bought was in 2014. We're five years into this business and, and multifamilies, you know, multifamily syndication. And we've, we have not held a deal for longer than three years. The one deal that we've owned for three years is on the market now. And it's going to be probably three and a half years before it sells. Other than that, we've never owned a deal for longer than three years. Now, we've gone into deals with five to seven and seven to 10-year business plans. The market's just been really good. We timed it really well where we've been able to take advantage opportunistically because as a sponsor, the structure of your deal is the most important thing you could possibly do because that structure is going to dictate whether you get cash flow, whether you get fees, upside, whole nine yards. So as a sponsor, you look to achieve your business plan as quick as possible and you know, that's what we've been able to do. We've been able to deliver results and really drive home our business plan quickly, partially because, you know, we pride ourselves on execution. But I think the bigger part is that the market's been so favorable where we've been able to execute our plans quicker. And we've also had people knock on our doors or brokers bring us buyers that it's perfect for them. And they're going to get your year five pricing now. So, you know, when you hear that, you just take advantage of it. And, you know, sure. we took advantage of stuff you know, for two reasons. One, it was a great return for our investors. We've done very well on all our deals. And the other reason is to really play in the big leagues, you have to have a, a real credible track record. And sure. you know, there are some deals that, did we sell them quickly? Yeah, we did. Could we have held them? Yeah, we probably could have, but it was able to go full cycle A to Z on a transaction. So you could say, guys, we've done it. We're going to do this again and again and again. Got it. So 
what is your what is your typical deal structure, your GP structure, and then what are your typical value add plays? What are you doing to lower the expenses and increase the revenues? Yeah, so our typical structure, and I say that loosely because we are the market's been a difficult place to find the right deals. So, and you know, we're not buying twenty deals a year. You know, we're buying four or five a year, give or take. The deals that we've been doing have typically had a preferred return somewhere between six and eight percent with our first hurdle being, you know, 80, 20, 70, 30 to 12 or 14%. Could you, could you, could you explain the hurdle to the listeners that may be newer to the multiple? Yeah. And that 12 or 14, we'll have another hurdle and that, but basically what that means is that the first, the preferred return goes to all the investors before the sponsor makes a nickel. So, you know, if it's an 8% preferred return, you're getting the first 8% out of the deal. Then the next, penny that comes out of that deal goes into a 70-30 split, let's call it. So for every dollar over eight, 70 cents goes to the investor, 30 cents goes to the sponsor until you hit your next hurdle and then another shift happens. But those splits on dollars are only on the incremental split. So the whole deal doesn't change to 70-30, only the percentage over eight, 12, you know, so that's how we make money. It's you know, if we don't deliver and you guys get a, a, a five, we don't make a nickel for that deal. Yes, we have, a, you know, a, an acquisition fee up front. We have an asset management fee. But as far as cash flow and upside, we don't touch that until we deliver a finished product. So what would you say your average return to your investors has been? So we've, and you know, the past performance doesn't, you know, mean it's going to continue. But our, our average return since 2014 has been somewhere in the mid 20s to low 30s. Give or, give or take, you know, we just sold a deal in Jacksonville that ended up being, you know, I think it was like a 28, 30% IRR. It, but that's been pretty typical. And, and as I don't say that to pat myself on the back or anything like that, because, you know, there are a ton of people doing it. The market's helped us out a lot. But where we differ from most is that we are, you know, out of the 22 deals we bought, maybe four to six of them were actually marketed deals. So the rest of those deals, have literally been bought direct to seller transactions. Now, I'm not saying a broker wasn't involved, but you know, it's been direct communication. So we haven't just gone out online and got a Cushman Wakefield listing and just bought it. We've done that a couple of times because you have to, but a lot of our transactions have been off market. That's the difference between us and a lot of other groups where we're buying deals that you probably haven't seen before. So that's helped us out dramatically because we've been able to get really good buys. So that, that's been a huge a huge pat on the back for us and our success has been able to buy deals that the average person and even a, you know, a sophisticated person probably isn't seeing, which has really helped us out. You know, it, it's, it's tough. And, and the value component to our deals, you know, we're typically looking for deals that have not been renovated in 10 years, you know, seven to 10 years. It's, you know, a long-term owner. There's a lot of deferred maintenance and, and that's what we like to buy. We like to buy deals from long-term owners that aren't billing back water or it's 100% occupied and they just haven't pushed rents or they haven't done washer dryer, the property's falling apart, the landscaping's really poor. That's the stuff where we add value. So from a management standpoint, we're not looking to go in there and cut expenses 50% unless we see you know, a clear opportunity. Like we're buying a deal in Columbus, Ohio right now where there's water leaks in the whole property because the guy's owned it for five years. He bought it out of foreclosure. He does not care. It's 90 plus percent occupied, but his water bill is about twice the price of a regular property. And we own 
just about a thousand units in Columbus. So, you know, we have a, an extremely good track record and what operating expenses should be. So this particular deal, he's got no low flow toilets, no low flow shower heads. He doesn't have any of that at the property. He doesn't need it. He's cash flowing really well. So we'll go in there, we'll do all that improvement and we'll cut the expenses drastically because this guy's not, he's from New York as well. He's not an operator. He, he buys a lot of delinquent mortgages. So we know going in there that we have a water, we could trim the water expense. And then in addition, he has no other income at the property. He's not charging for pets. He's not charging application fees. He's not charging water bill back. You know, we'll go in and we'll bill back the water to the residents, you know, 30, 40, $50. You know, that adds up over 260 units. So this deal is, you know, I don't want to say it's mismanagement because the guy's doing a really good job. It's just not maximizing his management. In addition, the property hasn't been renovated in 10 years. It's, it's basically all original. So we're going to put the CapEx in, increase the rents, and the rents are probably about $200 below market. So it's just a, you know, your prototypical garden style, multifamily value add property. Awesome. So the next, next part of our show is we typically ask for the highlights and the lowlights. So can you pick like one deal and walk us through from the infancy to, to the end of it, of like your, your best home run knock out of the park? Yep. And then maybe one that that went terribly wrong, or, or yep. you know, so just pick your pick your two. Yeah, so so we'll talk, we'll start with the good because you know everyone has the good ones. No one likes to talk about the bad ones, so we'll right. go through the good one quickly. We bought a deal in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, we bought it in 2016. We sold it into 2018. Fantastic deal. It was a million dollars in equity. We turned a million dollars into five million dollars. It was only three investors: myself, my two partner, four investors. I'm sorry, myself, my two partners in that deal, and one passive investor. It was the best deal ever. It was an 80 unit property, 72 units were multifamily and there was eight condos. So it was originally built to be condos in 2004 to 2007, 2009, the market crashed. He could not sell out all the condos. So the owner retained them. He retained 72 units. He knocked on our door because we own two other properties in Charleston. He basically came to us and said, I'm in a really bad situation. I am in a I'm going to get foreclosed on in April. So this deal has to close before April. He gave us like 40 days to close the deal. So it was an extremely distressed situation. We came in, we bought the deal, you know, March 30th of 2016. And when we bought the deal, a business plan was to buy back the eight condos, turn it back into an 80 unit property. So we bought back the eight condos. We renovated every single unit, new flooring, new lighting package, not crazy stuff, no, not granite or stainless steel. It was just basically, you know, let's clean the property up. We built a brand new clubhouse. And then 22 months later, we had a perfect situation on a sale. The guy that bought the property owned acreage behind us. And we were the only form of access to that acreage. And he wanted to build on that. So it was a very unique buyer, very unique situation. Ended up being the best deal we done to the point where our accountants just going through our taxes because we've 1031 that money since. Mm -hmm. The accountant yesterday told me, he's like, what? You have such, there's so much depreciation that you guys have accumulated that you have to recapture. What do you sell that for? I was like, we actually sold it for like 11 and a half million. We bought it for six. And he was like, holy shit. Like that's one of the best deals we've ever seen. So that was the best deal we ever did. It was a phenomenal deal. Envisions aligned. It was a unique situation, a unique seller. I don't know if we could replicate that in today's market, but it ended up being a fantastic deal. Um, the worst deal we ever did. The worst deal we ever did was, you know, knock on wood, we haven't lost money yet. 
for investors. Now, my personal, when I bought a house in Philadelphia, you know, 700 bucks here, $1,000, yeah, I lost. But none of those were even close to the worst deals. The worst deal we ever did was a deal we're actually selling now. It was a 240-unit gorgeous property. We bought it when Donald Trump got elected. And when he got elected in 2016, interest rates went flying up. So the day of closing or 48 hours before closing, our loan proceeds went from 18 million to 16 million. So we were short $2 million. We had planned to do a $2 million renovation at the property. So we had to literally change our entire business plan 48 hours before we were supposed to close. So we ended up going back to all the investors, getting a couple extra dollars, but we never really had the money that we needed to achieve what we wanted to achieve simultaneous to that through contract, the seller ended up putting in 56 tenants out of 240 that were unqualified to live there. So the lesson we learned was timing, we couldn't change, but we didn't do a second lease audit before we closed to find out what changed from when we put it under contract. Before we did our original due diligence, we didn't do like a one last check. And Mm -hmm. we ended up having to evict 56 tenants inside of the first 12 months. So this is a property that for 10 years, the guy owned it for 10 years. He had historical financials. The property was never below 90% for 10 years. We bought it within the first six months. We had the occupancy at 68%. So we literally had to evict a ton of tenants. We were losing a lot of tenants to buying houses because it was in a very nice market. And then in addition to that, the leasing agent was running a, what's the politically correct term? She was an escort service in the property. So there was, there was, people coming into the property, unbuttoning their shirts, saying like, let's go in the back room. And when we took over, our manager's like, whoa, 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 what's going on? There's here. <laughs> so it was just, it was a perfect storm of a lot going wrong. Now that deal, it was a 1031. So we were already in a unique situation. So we paid, I want to say a premium for it. Long story short, that it's the worst deal that we've done. And we're probably still going to come out with the, you know, you know, a low double digit return, maybe like 10%, give or take, maybe between seven and 12% if we hit the, the projected sale price. So it just, it hasn't cash flowed for three years. It's just been a very hard deal because, you know, once we get it like two steps forward, it's a step back with, you know, okay, we have a, a set of evictions, but we finally turned the entire tenant base. You know, we put in as much money as we possibly could, but we, we were never able to really achieve our business plan without doing a capital call. And we haven't done a capital call. We, we, you know, we pride ourselves in bringing too much money to the table up front. So that deal right now will go down as the worst deal. You know, knock on wood, it's the only one like that. It was just tough because if I blindfolded you and put you in the middle of the property, you'd say it's the nicest property we own by far and away. We buy a lot of rough C and B stuff property. This property, you know, if I dropped you there, you'd say, wow, it's a really, it's a beautiful property. It's a great looking deal for whatever reason, it just was never able to get off the ground and really perform the way we want to. You know, the markets helped us out. The other thing we learned, we did a 12-year Fannie Mae loan. So our prepayment penalty is extremely brutal, which also hurts our sale. It just, it hurts because, you know, the prepayment penalty sucks. So it, it taught us a lot on, you know, the right, you know, you got to put the right debt on it to double check your leases, to double check your file audit. So that's probably the worst one so far. Due diligence. Exactly. So, my next question, I'm going to ask you to, to address it in, in a two-tier response. It's basically, it's what advice would you give to other investors looking to get started? I want your answer on, you know, speaking to an audience that's sitting in their W-2 job, considering investing in, in 
real estate rather than, you know, in the stock market. And then I'll, I also want your answer directed towards the audience of real estate investors that might be doing, you know, what you were previously talking about with rentals and flips and the, yep. the tax liens. And what advice would you give them to maybe help them transition over into the multifamily? I think the, the first and foremost is that we are in a very weird space, right? The market's been on an absolute tear for really 10 years. I mean, 2009 crashed, but since the bottom 2011, 12, the market's been on an absolute uptick. So, you know, my first piece of advice is I think I can make an argument both sides that the market's going to crash tomorrow. And I can make an argument that the market's got another 10 years to go. So the one thing that I think that I did really well was get involved and speaking to the real estate investors you know, the guys that own three or four rental properties or, or maybe they're doing something smaller. What I can speak to is, you know, get involved, find somebody local that's doing this or find someone that you, that, that you want to be like. And the first thing you have to do is ask the hard questions, which is, Hey, how can I help you? What can I do? How can I provide value? But don't expect anybody to just give you a handout. And if they're giving you a handout, it typically comes with a lot more than just, oh yeah, I'm going to give this to you for free. So speaking to the real estate investors, you guys are doing this, you're already doing it. So you already know what you're doing. Don't be afraid to go bigger, to do a little bit more and, and get involved, do anything you can, whether it's touring properties, driving properties, adding some type of value. That's the easiest advice to real estate. Just do it, right? That's, you know, Nike's slogan, right? Just do it, get involved in any way you can raise money, you know, find a deal, bring a deal to the table, whatever you can, just do anything you can to get involved. To the W-2 side, I think everybody wants, you know, everybody, you know, has that dream of quitting their job and having their passive income just, you know, offset their income. What I can say is that it's a lot harder and it's a lot easier said than done. But the advice I can give anyone in a W-2 job is invest. See what it's like to write that check and be a passive investor. Understand the passive side first before mm. you transition over to the active side. Because a lot of passive investors look on the other side of the coin and they say, wow, the grass is so much greener on that side, but they don't understand the other, the other side yet. And to really fully understand the other side, I think you have to understand what it's like to be a passive investor. And I don't say that self-serving where it's like, Hey, call me and give me money. Cause if you called me right now and said, Hey John, I got a hundred grand for you. I'd most likely say no. Cause we, we vet our investors more than our investors probably vet us. Cause we know what it's like taking money from people and understanding who they are. But I tell people to like, when you hire someone and you're trying to explain to them how to do a job, if you've never done that job, you can't fully give them the training they need. Sure. So as a sponsor and as a syndicator and as someone doing this business full time, if you don't know what it's like getting investor reports, understanding deals, you know, looking through an executive summary, it's very difficult to go out and do it. So what I tell people, I, I put it in a three-part process, passively invest. It could be 20 grand. You go on, there's a million crowdfunding sites and that investment is for education and education only. It's to understand how the passive side works because you're going to see things that sponsors do that you may like or you may not like. So you know, okay, if I do it, I'm going to do it like this. So, you know, invest $20,000, $10,000. Just go on a website and invest. The second part is be active try and find a sponsor that'll give you a little bit more. Maybe it's, you know, come toward due diligence, understand the underwriting, go into their office, try and get a little bit more involved, but understand you're taking a active role. So you're passive 
and active where you're not fully involved, find a sponsor that'll let you listen into management calls or maybe they record their management calls and they'll play them for their investors. So get active. Then the third part is surround yourself with anyone you possibly can to build your network because real estate deals are successful not because of you bought them low, you're operating them great. Real estate deals are successful when you have a database. When a deal goes a little sideways, you know the right person to call to fix it. So be passive, get active, and then surround yourself with like-minded people so you're not, you know, you're going home to your wife or your husband or you're going back to your family. You're saying, oh, I want to be a real estate investor. And they're going to call you crazy and don't do it. You're never going to make it. Don't surround yourself with those people. Surround yourself with people at your RIA, you know, bigger pockets, Facebook chat rooms. Surround yourself with people that are doing it and just pick their brains. You put that together. That could be put together in six months, three months, or six years. There's no formula for how long it takes. If you do those three things, you will easily transition to on the other side of the coin and you can, you know, you can become an active real estate investor and you can let your past the W-2 job go by its wayside. And then you also may find out that you don't want to leave. You love being an accountant and you just do real estate part-time. So if you take those, you know, that three-step process, I think that's the best advice you can give anyone in a W-2. That's an that's a awesome answer. I really appreciate that. So what's next for you? Oh, that's a good question. We are 2017, we started looking into the mobile home space. 2018 was a tough year. We weren't able to shake anything free. We have two full-time people in the office cold calling nonstop for multifamily and mobile home park deals. So we are actually under contract on three mobile home park deals. So, you know, 2020, we're expecting to do some good business in the mobile home space. And then the other thing is that, you know, we're going to probably open our first fund in 2020. We'll probably look to raise somewhere between 10 and $20 million. Very unlevered cash flow focused. It'll probably be partially deployed into mobile homes, partially deployed into multifamily. That's probably what's next up on the docket is rolling out that first fund. Awesome. That sounds exciting. So the next part of our program, we, we typically just, we call it the radio round. We just have three quick questions to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. The first one is what's your favorite book? Favorite book. So I have two. I think that Phil Knight's Shoe Dog is an awesome autobiography. It gets you flowing. And then another book that I've been recommending a lot lately is Quit Like a Millionaire. Not real estate focused at all, but that's probably right up there. I recommend it to a lot of people because it really shows you, you know, if you invest properly, you can really do well, you know, and you don't have to have 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. You can, you can do it pretty well with, with significantly less. Awesome. Next question. What's your favorite quote? Favorite quote? a good question. I, I had a whole quote thing. Like, you know, I have a journal that I write in every day and I was writing different quotes every morning. I can't say I have a, a, a favorite one, but there is a Muhammad Ali quote that was in my yearbook under my name. And it was ways pound, pound the sand, you know, and I beat people up and it's not to be like, oh, I'm a mean person. It's just that, you know, you got to get ready for the day. You got to get ready. You know, you got to wake up every morning and you got to you got to put your gloves on and get ready for a fight because nothing, nothing's easy. Nothing's going to be given to you. So, and Muhammad Ali's the best. So, yeah. you know, any, any of his can, uh, you know, he's got some good ones. Absolutely. So what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Right now, I will say my most, uh, you know, the most, the best thing in my life right now is my wife and my daughter. I have a 10 month old daughter. She turned 10 months yesterday. So right now, you know, the biggest fight for me is, you know, when I get to, when I go to work, when I leave the house in the morning, I just want to do anything in my power to get back home 
to see my wife and my daughter. There's nothing better than them right now. And then the short follow behind that, I think, which is awesome, is that my brother just finally started really getting involved in real estate. And now he's working at the office full time. So I'm a huge family guy. I think awesome. that, you know, far and exceeds everything else. Anything I can do with my family is uh, the most important thing. Awesome. Love hearing that. So tell our listeners where they can find you. Best place to find me. My email address is the best John, J-O-H-N at Toro, T-O-R-O, R-E-P.com. You can reach me there or, you know, I get my cell phone out. If you, someone shoots me a text or an email, one thing that I do, I will give anybody 20, 30, 40 minutes of my time with advance notice. You know, if you call me today, you're probably not going to get it because I'm not going to answer if I don't know the number. But if you send me an email and, and schedule a time, you know, I'm a true believer in, you know, giving back as much as I can, you know, whether it's a new investor or a super sophisticated guy. Uh, I love talking real estate. I love helping. My cell phone number is 516-523-6205. I encourage any listeners. I said it a couple times, you know, you've got to reach out. you got to reach out. So I put that out there because, you know, if one person calls me and I can help one person, that was a successful day. Awesome. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a ton. I know our listeners are too, and we can't wait to hear from you again. No, awesome. I appreciate you having me. Uh, it was a blast and uh, you know, I hope everyone gets value and uh, you know, go out there and make it happen. All right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Cressworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>